Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control now see that synthetic opioids, including this powerful, I call it a, a weapon of mass destruction, uh, this powerful synthetic opioid fentanyl uh, is killing so many people. And that now is often mixed in with other illicit substances. Former DEA agent Mark Jufri is going to speak to us about the opioid crisis. Many security professionals are former law enforcement or have gone through extensive training on their jobs and have a wealth of experience. What evidence-based practices do is allow those individuals to supplement that experience with research. Dr. Concanon helps security professionals avoid making knee-jerk reactions by using evidence-based decision-making. A lot of times people confuse ESRM with convergence, and while they are arguably complementary, they are different things. It, it's not an approach, certainly, right? And ESRM, one of the foundational elements of it is holistic risk management, which means, among other things, that if it's security risk, it's in scope. Mr. David Feeney brings us up to speed on enterprise security risk management guidelines from ASIS. All that and more on this episode of Security Management Highlights. Mark Jufri, CPP, CFE, is a director for Hillard Hines in Chicago and formerly spent 30 years as a DEA agent. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you? Hi, Chuck. Great. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, we're going to talk about uh, opioids and, uh, you know, managing this risk to your organization. And the big, big problem is, you know, you're a former DEA agent yourself. You have a good handle on these things. But I want to give a few stats to people real quick, just so they understand. Sure. 47,000 people die of overdoses in 2017. You're more likely uh, to die from an overdose than a car crash. And we have a lot of car crash deaths. That was amazing. People under the influence of these drugs miss an average of 29 days a year. I mean, this is a huge impact to everybody. Tell us tell us what's going on. I'm, I'm, I was really amazed how big a problem this is. Yeah, no, it truly is. It's an unprecedented crisis in our nation's history. Um, the Centers for Disease Control say we're now in the third wave of the opioid crisis. The first wave was really uh, uh, excessive abuse of opioid pain medications and resulted in a huge spike in overdose deaths uh, to Americans nationwide. And that was followed as, uh, at about 2005 or 2006, that transition to a, a gigantic increase in overdose deaths related to heroin abuse for those dependent on heroin. And now we're in that third phase, which began in around 2012. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control now see that synthetic opioids, including this powerful, I call it a, a weapon of mass destruction, uh, this powerful synthetic opioid fentanyl uh, is killing so many people. And that now is often mixed in with other illicit substances. But this is something that's going to be with us. It's here to stay for some time. McKinsey uh, Group, which is an international management consulting firm, did a massive study on this, and they project that the opioid crisis will worsen in the next five to 10 years. Um, the impact is just massive nationwide, and, and it impacts all organizations. You know, uh, you, you cited some great statistics, Chuck, but also to give people an idea, every 15 minutes an opioid-dependent child is born in America. Um, there's something called neonatal abstinence syndrome, and that's simply the mother has been administering heroin and opioids to that fetus um, throughout the pregnancy by, by due to their dependency, due to their disease. And when that child is born into the world and that umbilical cord is cut, that 
infant goes into instant withdrawal. Um, doctors and neonative intensive care units are treating these infants uh, with, with opioids uh, to wean them off of their, their addiction. In our nation's worst state, West Virginia, um, uh, one out of every five infants that's born today is born uh, dependent to a substance. So the impacts of this long term on all organizations uh, in, in the workplace are just incredible. Well, to to add to how many people die, an American drops dead every eight minutes. That's correct. It's unbelievable. Yes. Now, let's talk about the workplace specifically. I mean, I, I ran a couple of guard companies, and marijuana was kind of becoming the new thing in California. When guards would show up to work stoned and say, I got a note from my doctor. And I go, dude, I don't care if you have a note from your doctor. You're, you know, you're under the influence. You can't operate the guard gate or you can't drive a security car. And they actually believe they could. It wasn't legal then. Now we're talking about legal drugs. People showing up to workplace saying, oh, I got a prescription. I'm all good. How do you handle that as an employer? Well, they have a prescription, but are they abusing the, the substance even though they have a prescription? Um, the studies show um, that employees who abuse illicit substances and abuse subscription substances are 16 times more absent, three times uh, they use sick benefits, three times more than other employees. They file workman's comp claims five times more than normal employees. They're two times uh, more likely to be absent three or more days in a row, and they're twice as likely to be gone within the first year of, 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 of uh, their being hired. So the impact and the cost can be tremendous. And you also have to look at uh, reputational risk to the organization. Uh, back in 2016, some people may recall there was an accident or many accidents in our transportation system where an Amtrak train uh, struck and killed two Amtrak construction workers. And when the National Transportation Safety Board did their investigation, what they found in, in the re report they released in 2017 was that the engineer uh, who was operating that train tested positive for the presence of marijuana. The two construction workers, one tested positive for the presence of cocaine, one tested positive for the presence of opioids. So the question is, even with prescribed drugs, if marijuana is going to be considered a medication, prescribed medications, do we want an airplane pilot uh, to be using prescribed or recreational uh, drugs? Do we want the school bus driver to be using prescribed or recreational drugs? Do we want our first responders uh, who are carrying a lethal weapon, our, our armed security professionals uh, to be using um, or abusing even, uh, even if they're prescribed drugs? So this is a big issue. There needs to be written policy. Each organization needs to assess what their risk appetite is. And, and quite frankly, different industries have different risks and different exposures. The healthcare industry, huge risk to the diversion of these uh, control substances. Um, so, so in the transportation industry, obviously there's other stricter mandates and requirements, but for all organizations onboarding, like everywhere and everything we do in the security profession, bringing our people on board, doing due diligence, um, having a drug-free workplace program, and importantly, more importantly than anything else, having an employee assistance program where employees who have substance abuse uh, uh, dependency issues, this is a disease, um, can be identified and referred to, for, for assistance and help. So let's talk about that, uh, the impairment part in the workplace, because only about 60% of employees have policies in place, uh, employers yeah, have policies in place. Yeah. Is that's yes, no, that, that's correct. Um, you, when you look at the, those who abuse uh, substances in the United States, and, and look, 70% of those who are abusing illicit substances work. Um, more than half of them work in small to medium-sized employees, employers. And those with severe substance abuse problems seek out small and medium-sized employers because small to medium-sized companies are the companies that tend not to have uh, work, work uh, drug-free workplace programs, tend not to have 
uh, established or available EAP programs, um, they're they're operating with fewer resources and often on, on more limited budgets. But you look at the impact. Look, um, the, you look at uh, uh, um, Quest Diagnostics, which is the largest uh, um, drug testing company in the United States uh, for workplace uh, drug programs. Uh, they reported uh, that the presence of opiates among employees increased over 40% in the last four years. That That's cutting across all organizations, large, small, medium. Um, and, and, and might some of those people be um, uh, be present with a doctor's prescription and, and the, that positive test is, is mediated? Uh, yes, indeed. But in fact, many of them are dependent on the opioid. And, and there's this cycle, Chuck, and circling kind of back to the initial where um, people very often, uh, they go in for a, a tooth extraction, they have knee surgery, they have back back problems, they're prescribed an opioid, Oxycontin or some other drug, and they become dependent on it. Um, that's an expensive dependency. That's an, 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 an Oxy $80 Oxycontin tablet. If you're doing four or five of those a day because of your dependency, that's a $320 a day habit. Uh, that's a $10,000 a month habit. That's $120,000 a year habit. Uh, guess where um, someone drug dependent is going to get the money for that? The, that's where we have situations where there's in, in, internal threats, where there's fraud. Um, the, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, year in and year out, um, puts their report to the nations and finds that uh, upwards of 10% of employees that commit occupational fraud are caught and are convicted, admit to having substance dependency issues. Um, and then those are just those who are admitting to the to the issue. But, but what we see frequently happening is those people who reach that level of abuse of opioid pain meds eventually switch to heroin because it's cheaper and more affordable and 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 the downward spiral just begins. They're going to be doing a few things. The most recent study shows a, of, a, of a strong opiate dependent population in, in the Midwest. Those dependent who came be dependent on opiate meds either uh, started stealing from friends, from family, from coworkers. Um, um, uh, started selling drugs to support their dependency. 50% uh, of the females said they sold their bodies for sex to deport, support their dependency, but virtually all of them eventually switched to heroin because it's more affordable. Well, and this uh, fentanyl, uh, I, I read, is 50 times stronger than heroin, but now there's a new synthetic drug coming out that's 100 times stronger than that. I mean, this is unbelievable. Yeah, and, and that's the issue with synthetics. And, you know, in, in the security profession, we need to be looking ahead. What's the next risk to our organization? What do we need to be looking at, playing on mitigating? And the real question moving forward is, will synthetics replace heroin? Will synthetic drugs, and you just touched on one of them, carfentanyl um, is used by veterinarians to... Uh, to um, treat uh, elephants and large animals, basically to knock them out so that they can they can treat them. Carfentanil is being seized routinely in many parts of the United States now, and these synthetic uh, opioids are being used by by uh, violent street gangs. They're being used obviously by the cartels. Much of this is coming from China, but some of it via Mexico uh, to to obtain massive profits, and 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 that in of itself is a risk to many organizations. Mark Jufi, CPP, Hillard Hines, great conversation, Mark, uh, huge problem. And thanks for shedding the light on this because I, I think most people are unaware when you say crisis that it means actually a lot more than a crisis. And I, I lost a family member to this, so I understand. I really appreciate your work in this area. Thanks so much. Uh, great to have the opportunity to speak with you, Chuck. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you. Dr. Diana Kincannon is a forensic psychologist, associate provost at Alliant International University, and dean of the California School of Forensic Studies.
She is also a member of the ASIS International Professional Development, School Safety, and Security Councils. Dr. Kincannon, it's a privilege to speak with you. Welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Today's topic, where science meets experience, we're going to be discussing ways to help experienced security professionals avoid knee-jerk responses to tragic events using evidence-based judgment. Tell us more about that. I think one of the first things to point out is that what we're looking to do is supplement the vast amount of experience that many of our security professionals have. Many security professionals are former law enforcement or have gone through extensive training on their jobs and have a wealth of experience. What evidence-based practices do is allow those individuals to supplement that experience with research. And this research is now fortunately readily available. Uh, It's a Google search away. And it allows these professionals to look at what has worked, what will work in situations oftentimes when as security professionals, we are pressured to do something quickly. And we know that often when we are pressured to do something quickly, it is not necessarily the most strategic response that we are asked to engage in. And it can result in wasted resources. It can result in uh, compromising of our credibility down the line. It can result in frustration for those that we serve who want us to have a more professional response. And so by accessing research and evidence-based practices, we can have a more focused and effective response. And we don't have to go through kind of a trial and error way of doing things. Um, So that's really what we're looking at. And we live in a world now where we almost have too much information. So by applying research, by being very focused, using the skills that the security professional often has naturally, where they are used to looking at who they are going to interview and deciding how they are going to limit the information that they access in order to conduct an investigation, for example. That same skill is what you do to determine what information you're going to access when you are conducting research. And so by doing applying those skills to identifying the research that one is going to access for responding to an event or to putting in place, for example, standing up a prevention program for a particular issue or meeting a particular challenge, the security professional can then focus and have a strategic response rather than a perhaps tactical response, which would be more limited in its ability to actually resolve the issue at hand. It seems to me when public violence first started emerging in a big way several years ago, organizations were underreacting to it. Are you saying we're in a phase now where security professionals may be overreacting to some of these violent public events? That is what I'm seeing more and more of. In my threat assessment um, practice, what I am seeing in my work with universities, what I am seeing is that there is such fear with all the active assailant incidents that have gone on or with the number of active assailant incidents that have gone on and the incredible amount of social media and traditional media, that coverage of these incidents, people are nervous. And it's understandable that they're nervous, but their fear translates into a demand for action. The very action that they're demanding, however, oftentimes, if we were to take it as a security response, could in fact do more harm than good, could escalate the actual threat. And so 
the way in which we can educate our constituencies and those we are serving is indeed to bring forward the evidence of what actually works. And it, it also allows us in educating our constituencies as to what is an appropriate response. It allows us to comfort them and help start to work with their fear because we must do that. We cannot leave them in a state of fear and simply say to them, no, we're not going to do what you ask. We need to have a, a reason as to why we are not going to act in that, that more knee-jerk way. We need to be able to explain to them and educate them on the, the approach that we're going to take and why. By bringing forward the data that says what is going to be effective and what wouldn't be effective, we actually are doing them service well as well and hopefully addressing the part of them that needs to feel safe and that needs to take responsibility for working with us to create a safe environment. I, I get this. In, in the family and circle of friends, I'm the guy that gets called. Just like you're probably the, the person that gets called too, right? Chuck, what happened? Yeah. What do we do? Indeed. And, and I say, listen, don't worry about it for three days. What do you mean? I said, unless it's at your front door, whatever you see in the news, three days from now is not going to be the story they're talking about. There's going to be other things that come out that have nothing to do with what's going on right now. And that always turns out to be true 95% of the time, right? So I think it's interesting that people know this. They see this in the news. They see what's happening. Yet when they get into a practice, they still feel they have to respond when they know, based on the evidence, that they don't have enough evidence to make a decision yet. Do you think social media is driving some of this need to look like you're a, a superhero responding or something? Oh, absolutely. I think social media creates a false sense of urgency in many contexts. And certainly when it comes to emergency events, that is that is absolutely true. And I think there is kind of a contagion factor that occurs um, that or there's and there's certainly a fear of a contagion factor that occurs. People's emotions get heightened. And when that happens, there is a feeling of a need to act to calm the emotions. There is a feeling that there is a need to let off steam. There's a need for maintaining a feeling of control. And humans do that by acting oftentimes. So, um, or demanding action of others in the case of security. I, I, one of the other things that can be helpful, however, is to get in front of that. As the security professional, we do know that there are risk factors, there are things that are occurring in our society right now, such as active assailants. And we know that our those that we are serving may be feeling a lack of control. I work a lot in higher education where the active assailant is 7% likely to, to um, present within an educational setting. That is a very modest statistic. But if you're on the other side of that or fear you could be on the other side, the wrong side of that statistic, it's terrifying. And I'm very empathetic to that. And so looking at ways in which we can prepare the campus communities to be prepared to deal with that unlikely event, but one that is very real to them. How do we use evidence-based practices so that they can be truly prepared is another way to apply the evidence in, in a productive manner, to get in front of an issue that they are worried about, whether or not they need to be from a statistical perspective is almost irrelevant. If they're not feeling safe, then that is an issue we must also deal with. 
you know, we can we can help them to feel safer, which is also a reality that we have to contend with. That is part of our responsibility. Now, to that point, tell me how we use structural professional judgment and what, and define that for people because it's it's actuary based. There's some there's some numbers behind it, but it's also using a combination of empathy and intuition and and all kinds of things. So structural professional judgment is a term that is used in professional psychology. Um, professional psychology previously, its first generation of threat assessment tools was based on clinical judgment. And what we found is we were a little bit um, better, not very much better than chance in predicting violence. And then we went to the other extreme and we used statistic-based instruments solely. It was solely actuarial. Um, and we improved. We definitely got up there into the 70s, the low 80s in terms of, of prediction of violence and threat. Now the the evidence-based standard is called structured professional judgment. And in psychology, what that is, is a blending of the statistical actuarial approach. So it is based on the data, but it also allows for that judgment. In security, we would also, we would often call that that experience. And it allows one to look at the qualitative factors, to bring your experience to bear, and to look at the context in which a situation is evolving and determine if things about that context or that situation should be considered beyond the stats. And to marry the two, if you will, to come to a conclusion about what the best action is. This is really important in security, obviously, because we can look at, for example, what is the best way to protect a particular institution of higher learning or casino or retail establishment? And we can look at the best practices and we can look at the evidence and look at what we should be doing in general in these, in these situations. But we also have to then broaden our thinking and look at the particular institution or casino or retail establishment with which we are working in order to ensure that we are tailoring the research to the institution, to the constituencies, to the culture with which we are serving. Dr. Diana Kuncannon discussing avoiding knee-jerk responses to tragic events by using evidence-based practices. Doctor, we could talk about this for days and days. This is fascinating. I'd love to come back on the show and continue this conversation. So thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. David Feeney, CPP, is an advisory manager of Cyber and Physical Security Risk Services at Deloitte. He chairs the ASIS ESRM Guideline Technical Committee and served as a 2018 chair of the Physical Security Council. He has also been a member of the ASIS IT Security and Security Services Councils. David, welcome to Security Manager and Highlights. How are you, my friend? I'm well. How are you? Very good. Very good. So today we're going to talk about ESRM, Enterprise Security Risk Management. You know, this is a growing topic. Uh, it was an acronym several years ago with some white papers. And now, if you're not doing this, you're just not doing it correctly. Is, is that a you think that's a good way to describe it? <laughs> I like the fact that you said it. <laughs> so tell us what that is for people that might not understand. Tell us, tell us what that term means and, and what it involves. Sure. So the Enterprise Security Risk Management definition, uh, as of the recently released ASIS International Guideline, is a strategic approach to security management that ties an organization's security practice to its mission and goals using globally established and accepted risk management principles. Now that sounds really good from a textbook, but 
basically the takeaways there are number one, it's strategic. So it's not, doesn't get into the granular how. It's an approach, just an approach. So it's not a methodology or a framework. It ties to the mission and goals. So security is, is aligned and connected with the organization, organizational mission and goals. And it uses principles that already exist. So the actual risk management execution part of this uh, should be familiar to a lot. This positions security as a business enabler, and it positions the security professional as an advisor to the business. So, you know, the asset owner or the business, I'm doing air quotes now, um, as we call it, is is they know their assets more than anyone else. They um, own the risk to those assets, but we are here to guide them through the decision-making process related to security risk. So let's define security nowadays. It's uh, it's a lot different. Uh, you know, when I was doing uh, internet searches on Alta Vista back in the 90s, security meant guard companies. And now that term is literally owned by the cyber world. And I know one of your hats you wear over there is uh, managing cyber risk. So how much of this is tied back into cybersecurity and physical security, or just it's all security to me. That's the way I look at it. But certainly the cyber aspect of this can put you out of business if it's not handled properly. Well, that's true. And uh, I think that the way that you look at security is the way that ESR, ESRM would, would advocate, right? Which is uh, if it's security risk, it's in scope. As, as far as a person's given potential universe. So what I mean by that is um, it, a lot of times people confuse ESRM with convergence. And while they are arguably complementary, they are different things. Convergence um, has to do with physical and cybersecurity specifically. It's usually uh, merging of organizations or org structure. Um, uh, it, it's not an approach, certainly, right? Um, and ESRM, one of the foundational elements of it is holistic risk management, which means, um, among other things, that if it's security risk, it's in scope. Now, if I have a converged shop and I'm responsible for physical information, cybersecurity, then I can adopt an ESRM approach to all of that. And, and that will help me not compartmentalize, which can be dangerous, right? If I only own physical security, uh, or if they are disparate but um, complementary or or uh, collaborative, excuse me, then you know myself and my cyber peer could implement it kind of in parallel. If we hate each other and there's no alignment whatsoever, I can do it just for physical security if that's the only thing that I own and have control over. It it really doesn't matter. Whatever whatever my potential universe is, that's where I can apply it. But ideally, and this is just me talking now, I think. If I have at least a collaborative relationship or span of influence over all security risk, I think that's probably the ideal situation because, you know, the bad guy doesn't sit in his basement and say, I think I'm going to, you know, perpetrate a, a cyber security incident. They, they don't, they just have, there's something they want and they figure out how to go get it, you know, and, and part of that vector is going to be cyber related and some of it's probably going to be physical related and if we're compartmentalizing and they're not there's there's cracks for things to slip this is a newer concept for more organizations i think how is this affecting the politics of security which is of course already a political animal in most major corporations is there are there new challenges uh you know being being invited into the c-suite well i think the old challenges are still there um i 
I think that the alignment with the organization's security strategy helps us um, get and maintain that seat at the table at the board level and the C-suite level um, because we want what they want, you know, and, and that's kind of what we're trying to make clear here with that. And this is a core tenet of ESRM with that tie to the organizational strategy is like, you know, I need to know my organization. Uh, a good friend of mine, Tim Wetzel, has a great story about how um, doctors are good at their jobs, uh, not because they know about viruses and, and threats to the body, but because they know the body, right? They know the organization that, you know, to follow the metaphor um, in, in their jobs, they know the asset, right? So <clears throat> that's what we need to do. We need to know the organization. We need to know the strategy. What are they trying to do? What are the goals and objectives? What's the mission? What's the vision? And then align everything that we do from a security management perspective, security risk management perspective to that. And upon doing that, we speak the same language. We want what you want, whether we're talking to asset owners, um, C-suite, the board. And, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, if, if we can get to a point where we are the, you know, we're, as a security manager, I think what you want to be is right hand man, you know, and and like the risk person. So, oh, okay, I have something, you know, I have to go to a meeting as to a security risk. Let me get Dave to come with me, right? I think if you get there, that's like a big milestone um, in succeeding to adopt this approach. Well, you said something very interesting that security needs to be aligned with the business plan, but security really always has been aligned with the business plan, right? going way back forever, but it really wasn't officially done because the intention of any security department is to protect the assets. Always always has been. Very, very interesting stuff. Is it easier to get in and have these conversations now? Or have we leaped forward in the last two or three years? Is this becoming the standard or not quite yet? I think it's easier to varying degrees. Um, I Security managers who I've talked to who have adopted or aligned with this ESRM approach are, are seeing benefits of that. Um, I think that the cyber risk environment, um, while it's unfortunate, is helping to shine a light how security risk threats uh, affect the organization and affect the organization's ability to achieve its objectives. All you got to do is watch the news for a couple of days and next time you hear about a data breach, you know, it's it's been the dots have been connected very clearly Um in those uh, examples of those threats. So I, I think they are making it easier. I think we are working towards, you know, standard ESRM, while it's been around for a long time, the um, the resurgence and renaissance of it is relatively new. So uh, I don't know if we're to um, standard status yet, but I have I have yet to talk to anybody who, who really understands ESRM and says, no, nah, that's garbage. <laughs> that's not going to work. You know, I, I haven't heard that, you know, like people who understand. I've heard some people say, well, yeah, I've, I've kind of been doing that, which is fair. You know, and I, I'm sure a lot of people have. Uh, they may not call it that, and they, you know, those that association may not have been made, but I'm sure there are lots. Of, so I've heard that. I've heard, you know, lots of questions and I've heard um, talk to some people that it's um, it's a big shift you know, to go from being kind of the authoritarian and the enforcer to the advisor. But I have not talked to anybody who has regretted adopting ESR. Excellent points, Mr. Dave Feeney, CPP PMP. He's advisor manager for Deloitte, Deloitte.com. Uh, David, always a pleasure to speak to you. Good stuff. And uh, look forward to speaking again here on Security Management Highlights. Great. Thanks for the opportunity.